Hollywood is rated LGBT Radio, starring your host, Rob Watson! Welcome, welcome, welcome to this installment of Rated LGBT Radio, and um, as advertised, I am your host, Rob Watson. Um, Today, we have a really great show, Um, really excited to talk to our guest. Uh, He is very well-spoken. He he has been an advocate across um, pretty much any media you want to think about. He has been on The Ellen Show. He has been on CBS. He has been on, uh, uh, well, you name it, and and he has spoken. He's had a TED Talk. He's spoken at 400-plus events um, about his life, and um, he has has a really important story to tell. Um, If you remember last week, we covered the Leo Baker story, um, which is, a movie that is going to be appearing on Netflix um, in the next few weeks. We had the director and the producer of that movie on with us. And, um, and we went through Leo's story of transition. Um, today's guest, who is Skylar Baylor, um, has some parallels to Leo's story. Um, Skylar is a trans swimming athlete, um, and he is launching – a really important program, which we will talk about in the show. Um, but Skylar is the first NCAA, NCAA Division I transgender men's athlete. Um, by 17, he set a national age group record. Uh, he was on the way to Harvard to swim as part of the Harvard's men's swim team. Um, and he did ultimately swim for Harvard University. I'm sorry, he was on his way to Harvard to swim for the women's team, um, and then he transitioned, but he did end up on the Harvard's um, men's team, um, and it was the most winningest team that they've had in 50 years. Uh, we are going to talk about his difficult choice, because as you can tell, he did transition in that, um, that period when he was going over to Harvard, um, which is sort of similar to what happened with Leo as Leo was on his way to the Olympics and uh, transitioned. And they both made life choices that, that impacted both their, their futures and their careers. Um, Skyler has, since then, has been a tireless advocate for the queer and trans community. Um, like I said, he's spoken at 400-plus events, and now he wants to make a bigger change on a larger um, which Timing is absolutely important because of what is happening across the country with trans people being under attack in multiple states um, with multiple different um, initiatives against them. Um, What Skylar has put together is a program called Lane Changer. This isn't a movie that you watch. It's um, not a book you download. This is an online course of... um, many, many different modules, and um, they're each, each module is on a different aspect of acceptance and uh, educating people on diversity, equality, inclusion, um, and it's a program on gender literacy. 
So um, we're going to talk to him about that. Um, before I bring Skylar on, I do want to mention the LA Blade, um, Brody Lebec, the editor and the producer of this show, um, not with us today, but I do want to call out the headlines that you will find on the LA Blade today should you go over to it, which you absolutely should. Um, the big lead story right now is about a family um, that is suing the state of Florida over the quote-unquote don't say gay bill. Um, the kids in the family, one of the older kids is trans, and the family is in this article is talking about the dilemma that they have with their younger children um, who are in elementary school who are essentially have a gag order on them to not talk about their own family and not describe them. And if they do describe their family, the teachers are not allowed to explain to the class anything about their family. So it's this really horrendous, draconian, and destructive environment that is being created. Um, and um, we'll, we'll talk to Skylar a little bit more about that. Also in the LA Blade is uh, information on monkeypox. Um, the LA Blade is presenting a town hall, um, uh, and that is, oh, I'm sorry, that happened yesterday, so um, it is a report on that town hall about monkeypox, what to watch out for, and um, right now, it would probably behoove everybody to be a little conservative in their activities. Um, at the very least, be very careful. And there are there's a list of things in the LA Blade that you should watch out for um, because that uh, ailment is um, potentially going to be widespread and we'd like to shut that down sooner than later. Um, we really don't need another one of those. So with that, um, I do want to, um, he's been waiting patiently in the wings, invite uh, Skylar Baylor on. Welcome, Skylar. How are you doing today? Thank you so much. I'm doing well. I'm really excited to be here. Thanks for having me. Oh, uh, thrilled to talk to you. Um, just fascinated over your story and um, and your voice. I mean, it's like it, it's your story is inspiring and fascinating but what you have done since then to go out and talk to so many people and evangelize around what has happened to you and what you've learned from it um, is really astounding. I, I want to take you back to, to your days in high school and, um, you know, as you were throwing yourself into swimming, I don't think you even had come to terms with who you were yourself fully. Um, and you broke your back. Take us there. What yeah. happened then? What was your life going on? What was going on for you? Yeah. Um, I mean, I think in high school and, and before that in middle school, I was really uh, just underwater. And I mean that quite literally. I learned how to swim when I was less than one year old, and I got serious um, in, in swimming around nine or ten. Uh, and I was just, like, really, really dedicated to that sport. Um, and it's a very intensive sport. You know, we're swimming 20 hours a week, most days two times in the morning before school at around 4 a.m. and then uh, in the afternoon and after school. So I didn't have a whole lot of time to think about myself. And then about halfway through my high school career, I broke my back. Um, I was in a, a biking accident where I fractured three vertebrae, and that forced me to stop pretty much everything that I had uh, that I was doing that I loved, right? I couldn't swim anymore. I couldn't see my teammates. I wasn't going to practices or competitions. 
Um, and a lot of things came crashing down for me at that time. Uh, and, and that was when I started um, trying to learn about myself. But I say trying as an operative word because I, was, I really um, wasn't ready and didn't have the tools to introspect. And so I actually just fell deep into mental illness at the time. Yeah, it's one thing you talk about in um, the, the motivational speeches you've given and everything else is um, to find community in challenge. What, when yeah. you were at that, that point where you were hitting the first major challenge of your life, what, what was your community? What did you, what, what got you through that? Yeah, I mean, I think at the time, I actually, I, I didn't have a deep community. I had my family and I had some friends at school, but a lot of us were quite lost. And I think a lot of people who struggle with mental illness in high school, I think might resonate with this. We were kind of all just like, you know, struggling together. Um, and it wasn't until I decided to take a gap year, which the therapist I was seeing at the time sort of mandated, basically, she was like, you really can't do anything else. You have to go and get residential treatment, go to rehab, really figure out this mental health stuff that you're struggling with before you figure everything else out before you go to college, before you go to Harvard and try to swim in college, et cetera. Um, and at first I was quite resilient to that, but I also knew that I wasn't getting what I needed where I was. Um, and when I went to treatment, when I went to rehab, that's when I think I first began developing community and uh, finding kinship and really finding myself. Um, in treatment, that was the first place that I learned that really learned to apply the word transgender to myself, was able to claim that identity as my own, um, and then begin building community surrounding that that discovery of self. And when when you got to that point, was um, your identity as being transgender, is that something that came out of you to express to the people who were trying to help you, or were they... Did they say something that opened up that possibility for you? I see. Um, yeah, that's an interesting question. You know, I, I, would, I will say that when people discover their themselves, I think that always comes from within, but I think some other people can help unearth it, right, as we, as we learn about ourselves um, and sort of hold our hands, guide us, if you will, through that process, support us as we, as we went through it. So for me, I would say that um, absolutely the discovery of, of being transgender is something that came from deep within. In fact, I think it came from my childhood, and finding it was about uncovering all the things that I had learned to hide it with. Right. Um, and with right. my therapist at the time was was integral with helping me figure out this identity. But it wasn't about her saying, hey, you are transgender. In fact, she never, ever said that. Um, but rather, hey, Skylar, gender identity seems like something that's important for us to talk about, you know, um, and then letting me tell her who I who I am. Um, but I do think right. that that distinction is, is really important because a lot of people and I know you weren't meaning for this, but I want to say it in any ways. A lot of people do think that you can sort of make somebody transgender. And that's something that I I've been accused of often, oh, Skyler, you're grooming the youth. People will tell me that I am making people become transgender. And you can't make someone become transgender. You don't become transgender. Um, being trans is something that is deeply uh, innate. It's part of who, who I am at the very least. And it's something that somebody could help me discover, right, that somebody could provide the language right. that would help me articulate that experience. But it's not ever something that we, that we become or are, um, are told that we are. Does that, does that resonate? Oh, no, absolutely. In fact, that, was, that leads me to what I was going to ask you next, which is that um, I've worked with um, a lot of different families where their child at um, a young age, like four years old, is identifying 
as trans. And many people are appalled or shocked or unbelieving that a child at that age is, is doing that. But it's very, very pronounced and, and almost unarguable at that point. And I realize you were right. not doing that yourself. But my question is, and this is one of the things, this is my real question, um, what they've found in studies is that when children do identify like that, if they are supported by their family, their, their real identity is supported, that those children go on and sidestep a lot of the mental illness and a lot of the challenges that other people who, who do not get that experience um, do suffer. And I'm wondering, in your experience, and this is a retrospect, you know, and we'll never know the real truth, but had you identified at an early age and your family being so supportive, do you think that would have changed your outlook on anything? Yeah, it's a great question. So I just want to first corroborate. You're, you're absolutely correct. So the, the psychology studies that we, uh, that we have um, affirm that when kids who are young speak their identities, um, and are affirmed in those identities, for example, allowed to socially transition, change their name, get whatever haircut they want, wear the clothing they want to, et cetera, um, be, be, be gendered with the correct pronouns. Um, these kids show depression rates, for example, indistinguishable in one study from cisgender youth, right, from not transgender youth. That's amazing, right? So when we affirm their identities, they are actually, their, their subjective well-being is, is the same as cisgender youth, right? Um, so that's, that's a, a big um, reminder to parents that affirming your kids is really important. Uh, do mm-hmm. I think that my journey would have been different had I found those words earlier? Sure. I think, uh, you know, unequivocally, my journey would have been different if I had transitioned earlier. Um, do I want to go back and change that? I'm not sure. And, and you know, I, I usually actually say very clearly no, but the reason isn't because I think I would have you know, experience the same pain. If I, if I had transitioned earlier, I think I would have experienced less pain. I think that to me is, is again, unequivocal. Mm-hmm. But I do think that all the things I've experienced have brought me to, to where I am today. And I love who I am. I love where I am. I'm very appreciative of all the experiences that I've had because they make me me. So I don't personally um, feel like it's valuable for me to say, like, oh, if I had gone back and done this, this, and this, then right. I would different. Right? Of course I would, and we can all say that about different parts of our lives. But I do think what's valuable is to look at what we're doing right now in the country to trans youth and saying, right now we do have the ability to give other people an experience with less pain, right? Um, and and it, when we say pain, you know, I think that word can, can be vague. Well, what we're talking about is less suicide, right? And I want to be really clear right. about that. Right. When kids are allowed to affirm themselves, have access to gender-affirming health care, they are more likely to live. It's very, very simple. And a lot of people don't get that. They think that this is, quote, a choice. They think that they are protecting their children. But it is very, very likely that if a kid says, hello, I am transgender, A, they are right, and B, if you reject them, you are contributing to the increase of suicidality. Right. And, and that, is, that has been the dilemma of a lot of parents that, that again, that, that I've worked with is that, in fact, one dad put it very succinctly, saying, you know, it's like I, I would either have a dead son or a happy daughter. And yep. know, so for him, totally. that, that there was no, no choice in, in, in those, those two choices. Um, but I want to I pivot a little bit to your family, which, which is your family is absolutely beautiful and, and wonderful. And I'm, I'm not just talking about physically. I mean, just their, their hearts are, <laughs> have, have come through 
in, in everything you've talked about. Um, I, I would love for you to share your story about um, starting with where you blocked your grandmother on Facebook because you were so afraid <laughs> she would not accept your, um, your path. Yeah. Um, I will say there's a couple things I'll say, and then I'll tell about that story. So my family has been very supportive in many ways, and I also like to share that um, the support that they provided me was, was that I, I never felt like I wasn't loved, and that's really key, right? I never felt like they were going to uh, kick me out, cut me off financially, you know, tell me that I couldn't, I was no longer welcome in their home. Um, I was never afraid of those things, and that might sound like a really horrible baseline. Well, that's because it is, <laughs> um, but mm-hmm. it also, unfortunately, is common for kids to experience those negative things, right? So I, I wasn't worried about that, and that was a privilege. Um, that said, we definitely had arguments, disagreements, and different difficulty understanding each other at the beginning of my transition. And there was points where my parents weren't sure about letting me transition, didn't want me to access the resources because what they were being told by quote experts in the field that, that they shouldn't, right? Because people didn't know any better and people were not learning about trans people from trans people at the time. Um, there was way less education about it now, not that we're in a, an amazing place now, but there was definitely less about, you know, 10 years ago. Um, so we didn't struggle. And I will say that the primary thing that they shifted on was when they decided to trust me, um, when they decided to say, okay, I don't understand, but I love you. And I'm going to trust my love for you. And I'm going to trust that you know yourself, even though I don't. That was when everything shifted and they got to see me blossom into the person that I am today. And I think that there was a really meaningful moment when my dad accompanied me to top surgery when he wasn't sure if that was the right decision for me, but he said, hey, I'm going to trust you. And he came with me to top surgery. It was the first dad at that top surgery recovery center actually that ever brought his trans son to the surgery center, which is heartbreaking if you think about it. Um, yeah. Heartwarming that my dad came. Heartbreaking he was the first. And, uh, and I think when he saw me wake up from top surgery and I, I cried in happiness, I bawled like I hadn't bawled, I think, in years because I was so happy. And I think that was the moment, and we've reflected on it since, when he thought, gosh, like, I, I need to trust Skylar because he knows what he needs for himself. Mm-hmm. Um, so that, that's just a little background about our family. The reason I say that is because, you know, I think support, people might think support sounds simple. Oh, yes, of course I support you, but there's complexity there, right? And it's important for us mm-hmm. to work through that. Um, my grandmother is Korean, so I'm half Korean. My mom's uh, family moved to the United States from Korea in the late 1960s. My grandmother Korean. She's also very religious. She's a very devout Catholic. Um, if any of your listeners uh, or if you know um, of, uh, of what immigrant Catholics might be like, you might know it's slightly more intense <laughs> um, than right. average. So, <laughs> anyway, that's my grandmother. Um, I was terrified to tell her that I uh, am trans. And when I first was coming out, I, like you said, I blocked her on Facebook because I'd come out to some of my friends on Facebook and I was afraid she'd see it and, uh, and I wasn't ready for that. So I spent a while figuring out what the best way was to tell her and I ended up writing her this letter that I planned on reading to her. Um, struggling through some, you know, language barriers as there's no word for transgender in Korean, um, and eventually going to tell her and saying, you know, how many grandmother, this is me, this is who I am, explaining what it meant to be trans. And then I, I closed with a part where I said, how many grandmother, I'm telling you this because I love you and because I care about you, I respect you, and I desperately hope you can understand. And it was me, my grandmother, my grandfather, and my great aunt all sitting around the table with my mom next to me. And I, I swear, my mom and I were, were absolutely certain that my grandmother was going to disown me. We thought they would be yelling and fighting and maybe that she'd literally throw me out of the house, um, you know, in that moment. But I finished reading the letter and I, I said, I love you. And then I just waited. And my grandfather began to clap. 
he had this really like slow clap and he goes, Oh, so you come out of closet now. <laughs> um, and I was like, how about your grandfather? You know, you, you barely like speak English most of the time. Like what do you mean coming out of the closet? How do you even have those words? You know? Um, and my grandmother, so, you know, my grandfather, we were so surprised by my grandmother. She's got this really stern look on her face this whole time. Um, and I'm, I'm much more nervous about my grandmother. She's the matriarch of the family. So I'm like, Oh my God, what is she going to say? And, uh, and she looks at me and she says, I knew that. <laughs> and I was like, how many, what, what do you mean? You knew that she was, I, I knew that. Okay, that's fine. I have two grandsons from your mother. I have a younger brother. Um, and, uh, you know, that was it. She said, I have two grandsons. That's, that's how it goes. And, um, mm-hmm. all right. And my mom started bawling at that point and I was close, but I, I said to how many, I was like, okay. Um, actually, you know, I actually wasn't saying a whole lot at that point. I was kind of just sitting there in shock. And I thought to myself, like, this can't be it. This is too easy. And my grandmother <laughs> went through all these things, you know, explaining to me how she, um, how she understood and what she understood. And then she, she paused and she said, listen, you can be a boy and a brother and a husband and all these things. That's fine. Um, but in Korean culture, daughters take care of their mothers and your mother has no daughters. So it is now your responsibility, Skylar, to take care of your parents. And I said, of course, (laughs) absolutely. That is the only caveat, of course. Um, And I actually got her words. Pumo hyodo, it means mother, father, filial piety, or take care of your parents. I have that tattoo beneath my mastectomy scar, my top surgery scar, next to my heart. A tribute to her, my grandmother, a tribute to my history, a tribute to all the womanhood, womanhood that I come from, um, a tribute to the daughterhood that I was assigned, never truly identified with, but the duties of which I will fulfill. Right. And and that actually leads me to a question for you, because that I love that story. Uh, it's, you know, and I just want to hug your grandparents. Um, but it, it actually, and even though it's very culturally specific, it does tip to a bigger issue that is never discussed um, in this regard, which is, you know, and I'm a gay dad, you know, I have two sons, one is turning 20 tomorrow, which I can't believe. Um, but, uh, one of the things when I had my kids coming from my experience was I was just excited to see who they would become. And so I was open book on their identities, who they would be, all of that. What I've gleaned from a lot of parents, uh, across the board, parents have expectations on their kids and it starts at those gender reveal parties and, (laughs) <laughs> things like that, you know, where, you know, they start painting the picture and the plan and the visioning of who their children are. And so when yep. a child comes out as transgender, for a lot of parents, even the most supportive parents, there's a shock. And, and, and not, not ironically, you know, when we talk about a transgender person's dead name and dead identity, their parent is one of the people who holds that dead identity with them. Mm-hmm. Um, mm-hmm. And so there is kind of, and, and in your story, this, it was this wonderful, sweet transition where you picked up the expectation and carried it on. What would your mm-hmm. message be about that, not only for transgender people's families, but for the transgender person themselves? 
Yeah. Um, you know, I think so. I think this is complicated, and I think the reason it's complicated is because it's, it's rooted in grief, and we don't, I think, fundamentally as a society, don't know how to grieve. Um, and we have this complex relationship with with essentially parenthood, where a lot of parents, and I would say a majority of parents, to be honest with you, that I've interacted with, they project their expectation of who they want their kid to be, and usually mm-hmm. that's a projection of who the parent never got to be. Right. And that's a really mm-hmm. important distinction. And what happens and this, by the way, is parents of anybody. You don't have to have be a parent of a trans kid. This happens a ton with parents of cisgender kids, too. Um, when a child grows up or at any point, actually, in their life and exhibits a characteristic or a behavior or a choice that violates what the parent expected for them, um, oftentimes the parent can get very angry. And you can think about this in, about this in like very socially acceptable, quote unquote, um, ways. Let's say a kid doesn't get good grades or let's say the kid doesn't go to the right school that the parent wants them to or they don't take the right classes or they don't play the right sports or what have you, right? That's easy. We can all think of people who have experienced like anger from their parents in those moments. Um, but this is a bigger issue and it's a deep issue where parents expect their kids to live out all the dreams the parents never got to. And parents have got to stop doing that. This is a big, like it's a way bigger issue than transness, mm-hmm. um, than, than, you know, transness presents. But I do think it can be heightened when a kid says, hey, I'm not the gender you thought that I was because of the amount of standardized expectations that we place on gender, right? Um, but I, I guess what I'm trying to explain is this is bigger than, than transness, and I want people to understand that so that we can mm-hmm. access these kinds of shifts in all places, not just when we have trans kids. Now, the thing that I, that I think is important here, and this is where, where it becomes complex, I think it's normal to have expectations. I think it's normal to project dreams on others, but the thing is we have to learn that we're doing that so that we can stop. And it's not the problem isn't necessarily that we have the urge to do that. It's when we don't recognize what we're doing and then don't shift our behaviors. And I think that one of the, the biggest things that I've learned when I, so I mentor a ton of trans people, um, specifically trans youth, and then I often talk to their family, their parents, um, and I always tell the parents, hey, you, you need to grieve, actually. If you have grief, please grieve. But the most important distinction is you cannot grieve with your child, and you definitely right. cannot blame your child for that grief. And those are the important parts. It's not that you can't grieve. In fact, if you have grief and you don't grieve, that will, that will screw everybody up. <laughs> um, but it is that we need to make sure that we, we separate that grief from the child. And the thing that so many parents do wrong is they'll blame the trans child for the, quote, death, and you use that word too, dead identity, the death of the person they expected the kid to be, um, and they need not do that. The, the, the expectation, the person to blame for that expectation is either society or oneself, right? You know, right. So-and-so's parents, that person expected that, and so it's them they, they, they have to sort of come back to. But again, blame is not the right focus, in my opinion. It's more about saying, okay, I expected this, and I have to grieve what I expected and understand that there is still a whole person in front of me. And this is the second part of your question. What about the trans person? I, I know trans people who get very uncomfortable and upset when a person tells them that they are grieving who the trans person used to be. And the reason is very simple, because we're still here. Right? When somebody says to me, right. Tyler, well, I'm right. grieving who you were, um, that tells me that you don't, you're not present with me now. But the, and then here's the next complication is that we are always grieving who we used to be because we are always shifting. Right? We're always evolving. We're always not exactly the same person as the person before, or the day before. So I think I, I know I might be painting a complicated picture with lots of like lots of conflicting ideas. But the, but the truth is that grief and um, movement forwards can all exist together. And I think we need to expand our understanding of those things. Hopefully that made some kind of sense. 
Oh no, it made total sense. I love and I love the distinction you made because, and I totally agree. It's it's like yes, yes, own your grief feelings, but realize that you don't get to saddle anybody else with with blame or whatever because it, it truly is the expectation, and that is your point exactly. is completely valid. That is the nature of parenthood. I mean, it, it yeah. can happen on a daily basis in parenthood. Of like, well, I yeah. need you to be neat and clean your room, and you're not that kid, you know. So yeah, well, I mean, and it, can um, be, it can even be positive, you know. Like you can expect that, like when a kid is like, I don't know, the terrible twos I've heard are not so great, but like when they're like five, six, and seven, they're pretty cute, you know. Seven, eight, nine, they're still pretty cute, and then they hit eleven, twelve, and they're little demons, <laughs> um, <laughs> and that kind of happens, and that's okay. And as that happens, like I know plenty of parents that grieve their kid being younger. Right. Or grieve them. Oh, what was so cute when, you know, little oh, yeah. Johnny likes to play with trucks and now he's not. And he's yelling at us when he comes home and slamming his door because he's a teenager and he's normal. Right. Like, um, yeah. so I think that yeah. that's what I'm trying to say is like this grieving of who we thought kids were going to be or even who the kid was and no longer is is a very universal experience, and it's also a universal experience for us to grieve who we were and who we expected ourselves to become, you know? I grieve right. that I will never become all the things that I expected in some ways, and I'm so happy that I'm becoming exactly who much, much of my younger self thought I would become, right? And both of those things exist right. simultaneously. They neither precludes the other. Yeah, and that's, I think that is, and you were talking about complexity before, and I do think that is part of the complexity because you can have two sets of emotions that really don't belong together. They're mutually exclusive. You know, in other words, they're around something that's mutually exclusive, but you yeah, can we still have those that. emotions. Yeah. yeah, right. It's like, well, I mean, there are things that, that you know, you're, you either are going to do or you're not going to do, and, you know, you're not going to do both because if you did one, you wouldn't be doing the other by definition. But you can still have feelings about each of those, even though one of them is, is not going to be a reality. So, I mean, it's just, it just, it, it speaks to not only the point that, you know, not all of this is just kind of linear and neat and, and tidy, but, um, and I'm sorry, I lose my, my thought on that, but it, it, um, it also gets very specific to the individual. Um, like I was mentioning before last week, um, the subject of this show was Leo Baker, who is a skateboarder um, uh, and a, a trans skateboarder. Leo was known before transitioning as one of the top female skateboarders. And that transition for him was very demonstrative of, of the depth of the choice he was making because he, he was truly yeah. walking yeah. away from some, some huge notoriety that he was he was going he was consciously leaving behind and opting out of the Olympics altogether um, as a result of that. A lot of parallels to your own story, but you too are completely individual. And you know it's like to try to just pin generalizations on each of you, like oh they did the same thing. No, they didn't. You know it's it's they have their own lives. They have their own yeah, and they have their own feelings yeah. around each of those. You know, so totally. let's let's go back to your story and that that part I was just talking about because you did have that kind of Sophie's Choice moment um, for yourself as you were 
on your way to Harvard. You were supposed to be on the women's swim team. You were transitioning. And I know at one point there was a choice. Somebody um, referred to it as um, you could lead a double life and be a woman in the pool but a man in school. Um, but you <laughs> chose not to, to do that. Um, tell us about that. Yeah, I think it was one of the most difficult decisions in my life. I mean, you were reflecting on Leo Baker's decision as well. I mean, I think uh, it, it was very similarly. I, I felt um, I felt like I had to choose at, at one point before I realized I could actually compete on the men's team because I didn't know that was possible. Before that, I thought I was going to have to choose between swimming um, and, and potentially being like a champion in the swimming pool on the women's team and just you know, not, not swimming at all. I thought that if I, I was going to be openly myself, be openly trans, I was going to have to quit swimming. So that was the original decision that I thought I was making. And that was horrible. I was, I was very upset about that because both of those things felt like being me, you know, being a swimmer and being, um, being a man are both really integral parts of, of who I am. Um, later, when it was clear that I could swim on the men's team, it still was difficult because I had worked so hard to be, uh, you know, a very successful swimmer in the women's category, right? And I knew that switching to the men's category could potentially lose me. Well, not potentially. I would definitely never be a woman champion, right? I would never be a champion in the women's NCAA category or go to women's Olympic trials and so on. Um, and I, I, I had to make that decision. I was going to give that up and, and basically start anew in the men's division. And did I want to do that? Um, and it took a lot of, I think, from, for myself and my journey, it took a lot of letting go of what was expected, going back to expectations, what was expected of me and what I expected of myself in terms of what was considered successful. And I had a really important conversation with my dad at the time where he said to me, this is when I had, I, at first I just decided to stay on the women's team. I had been pretty sure about that decision. And my dad said, Skyler, you know, you're doing this because I know you want to continue to be successful, win all these medals and go to all these, you know, high caliber meets but he said he said to me Skyler you've already done a lot of that I mean you've been to nationals multiple times you've set a national age group record with your team you got recruited to Harvard like most people would consider these things success and you've done all these things and where are you now you know and you know at the time I was still in rehab I was still in treatment I was still miserable I was mm -hmm. still really struggling and um and he and my dad said what are those trophies going to mean to you if you know, they aren't really under you. They're not your name. They're not who you are. You know, that would be my name, of course, but you, you know what I mean. And um, mm -hmm. and I really started thinking about it. I was like, what will the success mean if it isn't me being myself? And I realized that I had to let go of this idea that success only meant numerical, sort of what I call paper successes. And you can write down on a piece of paper and say, hey, this is what I've done. That success was, was beyond that. And those successes were not actually bringing me any kind of um, self-fulfillment and definitely not improving my mental health. And so in the end, I essentially decided to take this risk where I said, you know what, I, I have to try this other path um, of being true to myself. I have to take this risk for myself and my happiness instead of chasing all of these numbers, essentially chasing all of this um, success on a piece of paper that really hasn't gotten me anywhere. Um, so it took, it took me a while to make that decision. You know, I think a lot of people might think, oh, well, great, you could be on the men's team, do it. But it wasn't that simple for me because I, I was afraid of all the things that would come. I was also really afraid of what it would mean to be so publicly trans. Uh, I knew Harvard's name would, would drag that story to, to the top of the um, you know, newsreel uh, very quickly. So I was like, I don't know um, whether or not I'm ready to do that and to be on a men's team of 40 college guys that I never really interacted with. You know, there was a lot that was daunting, but I decided in the end that I, that I had to take that step for myself.
No, I think that is um, that is a, a big, huge decision. It's a decision most people never have to make. I mean, it's um, it it. I mean, I call it a Sophie Choice moment because I, I really mean that. It's like it's one of those things that um, it would be scarier than hell um, to make, and the heighten of importance of what you were choosing it for um, is just kind of underscored that your identity and, and your authenticity meant that much that you're willing to put that much of, of what you had, had really been obsessed with up to that point on the line. Yeah. Or, yeah. I mean, I, th- I think that that speaks volumes and, and um, it's even though you and Leo have, each of each have that moment as part of your stories. I think a lot of transgender people have those, whether even though they weren't champions or, or, or on the way to the Olympics or whatever, they have their own Olympics or, or championship in their own lives that they, they put on the line, you know, when, when they do this. Yeah, absolutely. Um, I mean, if you think about the amount of, Oh, sorry. No, no, go ahead. Well, I was just going to say, if you think about the amount of, um, discrimination that we experience we being trans people in the country that that is in and of itself its own olympics right it's its own big Mm -hmm. thing that you have to surmount when you decide to say hey this is who i am um and like i said earlier i I mentor a lot of trans people and and one of the primary things that we seem to struggle with as a community is actually not who we are but rather others reaction to who we are right Humans are social animals. It's really important for us to have connections with others, and it can be really, really jarring, dysregulating, and daunting to to know that if you speak your truth about who you are, that somebody else is going to say, no, I no longer see you. I no longer love you. I no longer want to employ you. I don't want you in school. I don't want you in sports. I don't want you in healthcare. I don't want you in my home, right? Because all of those things are what is happening currently in the country to trans people. So you have to think mm-hmm. that, you know, one of the most, like, manipulative parts of this whole conversation when I not, – not in this one here, but in the country – about trans people is that we know that these things are happening. We know that there's this much discrimination against trans people. And then people will say, oh, it's just a choice. Oh, they just are doing this for attention. Mm-hmm. Trans people are not choosing to be trans. We are not we are doing this for attention. We are surmounting massive amounts of discrimination. And that should show how true these identities truly are because nobody's flippantly saying, yes, I want to experience all of this discrimination. They're saying, I would rather live massively discriminated against, basically stripping myself of my own rights, um, I'd rather live that and be able to be openly myself as a trans person than I would remaining in the category I was assigned. That is that is very important yeah. to understand. Yeah, no, absolutely. Um, I wanted, actually, there are a couple of points we've talked about that I've that got follow-ups, but uh, I'm going to pick this one. Um, I, I know for me as a gay man, um, one of the fatiguing things through my life, and this is very minor, um, is that I am constantly in a position to have to come out again. It's like every time I'm in a new situation, people make assumptions, especially they see me as a single dad with two sons, you know, it's like, and then we we have to have, I don't necessarily have the talk, but I will allude to something that is my shorthand for giving that person the information without having to just, you know, be real blatant about it. Um, But for trans people I know, um, 
and and I think this is true for a lot of people of color in different situations. There's a fatigue of constantly having to explain who you are, why you are, you know, just, you know, pretty much on a daily basis. How do you handle yep. that fatigue and what is your, your, what is your inspiration for others who are, are dealing with it? Yeah, no, the fatigue is real. Um, and I, I just want to echo what you said coming out. I think everybody seems, sees it as this like, you know, celebratory process. You woohoo, this one time I came out and I had a cake and I told everybody that I, you know, I'm trans or I'm gay or I'm this or I'm that. And there, therefore, there I was there, you know, I was done. That's it. I'm out. <laughs> um, and that's just not how it works. Yeah, I know you know that, but for anybody who doesn't, coming out is a, literally a never-ending process if we ever want to be continuously ourselves for a lot of people. Um, I assume, well, there are some trans people that might transition and then not come out after that because they, they live stealth, they live without sharing with their trans, and that's, that's fine, that's valid too. But for most people, it's a pretty consistent process. Um, it's exhausting. I will say it is absolutely exhausting. Part of how I personally have dealt with it, honestly, is through social media. And what, what I mean by that is most people follow me or will find me eventually on Instagram because they, you know, get my phone number and that's connected to my Instagram or they see me on Facebook or they, you know, read an article or whatever and I don't have to tell them. And that there's two, there's, you know, ups and downs of that. The up is that I don't have to tell them and they read it online and they learn what they do. The down is that they read it online and they learn what they do, right? We don't know exactly what they're reading, what they, okay. what they understand. Um, I don't, I'm not like actively consenting in a moment to sharing with them. So maybe I didn't want them to know. And that's, that actually is the case sometimes where I'm not ready for somebody to know, you know, the intimacies of my gender history and they do already because they've researched me or what have you. So, I think there's complexity to that, but part of that, that to me works for me personally, because I don't like always having to tell everybody and I'd rather them just read it online because I've already said it online, you know, but a lot of people don't feel that way. And a lot of people are not public figures the way that I am. My, my recommendation for people who get tired, you, you use the word fatigue. I think that's a good one um, with, with sharing one's identity. And I want to add, it's, it's not just sharing one's identity as, as I'm sure, you know, it's also educating about one's identity mm -hmm. or at least being expected to educate others about our identity. Right. And that to me is the more tiring part because answering questions about about, you know, all these intricacies, especially right now with the heightened focus on trans athletics and the amount of hatred and vitriol that is surrounding trans athletics. It's exhausting to have these conversations with people because they come with so much baggage. They come with so much mm -hmm. bias. And I first have to wade through all of that before they're even ready to listen to any of my actual facts. Right. Um, so I, my advice for people is to disengage. Honestly, if you are a trans person or a queer person and you are exhausted by having these conversations, you have to have to have to have boundaries. And it is so hard because the world does not teach us, especially us trans and queer people, in my opinion, and especially POC trans and queer people. Um, mm -hmm. I don't think we're taught how to have boundaries. I, I don't think we're taught to uphold them. We're taught to submit. We're taught to answer questions. We're, you know, one of the most common things to tell a kid to do when they're young, just be nice. Just do your best and be mm -hmm. nice, right? Those are very common statements. And I actually tell all of my clients, do not always try your best because sometimes you don't have the energy to do so. And secondly, do not always be nice because not everybody deserves all of your answers, all of your energy, all of your engagement, right? Um, and I'm not saying be the opposite, right? I'm not saying always be a butthole. <laughs> I'm not saying you know, <laughs> always disengage, but I am saying take care of your energy and prioritize it. It is really important for us to be able to be mindful of that, especially if we are marginalized in this world right now. So 
I practice, and it's a practice, really, because I fail at it often, but I practice telling people, you know what, I've already answered that question. Here's a link that you can read the answer. Or, you know what, I don't have the energy to answer your question, right, um, and so on. So I know this is a long answer. Sorry. Well, no, no, perfect. So I'm going to transition that to now, not only can you give them a link, you actually have somewhere to send them, um, and it's called Lane yes. Changer which is your new project. Um, it is, you know, obviously a program uh, for diversity, equality, and inclusion. Um, how did this get inspired? Give us the details on it. Yeah, absolutely. Well, it's a perfect segue from your previous question because the, the short answer is I have given hundreds of talks, hundreds of trainings, hundreds of businesses, schools, organizations around the country, and I originally thought I would do that, you know, a few times and the need would die out, but it has absolutely not. It's done the opposite. It's exponentially increased the need for trans inclusion and gender literacy training. Um, and so I realized I, I, you know, while I had done hundreds of these, there are thousands and thousands of more places that need this education. So I created Lane Changer. Lane Changer is a video learning series online um, accessible to as many people as I could possibly create it for. Um, and the, the design is really to walk you through uh, a, a gender literacy trans inclusion training from the point of our humanity. And the reason I say that last part is because a lot of times we remove the humanity of these issues. People are writing about trans people as if they don't truly exist, as if we are just an issue in the media. Have you heard about the Leah Thomas issue? Have you heard about the trans bathroom issue? Have you heard about blah, blah, blah issue, right? We are no longer considered people when we are talked about mm -hmm. that way. And so my goal in Lane Changer is to actually start by centering you with humanity. The, the, the piece Lane Changer begins with about a 15-minute segment about me sharing my story so that you can actually realize that you can connect with me. Because I've given, like I said, hundreds of trainings and people always come up and say, wow, I didn't realize that I would relate to you, Skylar. Because people truly have put us in this bucket of other, in this you know, bucket of like, I don't think I can possibly know, you know, any trans people. Some 60% of Americans say they've never met a trans person, which is highly unlikely they've actually never met one. They just don't know that they have. Mm -hmm. So Lane Changer allows you to actually meet a trans person and witness my story. My goal through that is to then hopefully through handing others my humanity is to welcome them actually into their own. Because when we can both be welcomed into humanity, we can walk forward together. After there, there is um, basic trans terminology, respectful language, because I think it's key to understand that before we can truly have respectful conversations. And then there are over 40 Q&A video modules that answer all the common questions we've gotten over the years, um, including those hot topics like trans people in sports, trans people in bathrooms, gender-affirming healthcare for kids, detransitioners, uh, talking about genitals, for example, which is a testy one, but it really is important to talk about what people um, don't know more about, right, and talk about how we talk mm -hmm. about these topics. So that's what Lane Changer is, and my, my goal is that it can be as accessible as possible to everybody so we can really start understanding that trans people are people, and we should, we should really begin there as opposed to, like, do we think these people should belong? <laughs> we, we really shouldn't be debating um, the belonging of trans people if we cannot even define the word transgender, which most people cannot. Right. No, absolutely. I, and the structure of this program um, from my understanding, you can take it in two ways. One, you can just dive in and watch the different videos and kind of yep. uh, sort of like do it as a magazine. You pick out what you want to read or want yep. to, to be exposed to and, and do it that way. Or there is a guided process where you actually are dedicating yourself to really learn. You get quizzed. You get, you know, 
I don't know that you get graded, but you you have yep. a process where you go through the whole program. Um, can you describe yep. both those ways of approaching it and and how you were inspired to do it that way? Yeah, so we've got self-guided and then certificate of completion, like you said. And self-guided is really just the goal is if you are, you know, really driven self self-guided learner, you can just kind of go through it and do it on your own, right? You can say this is what I want to learn about. These are things I'm curious about, and it doesn't it doesn't you don't have to complete complete any of the quizzes to move to the next module. And it's a very like open concept, if you will, training. And I think it's very useful in that way for many people because a lot of people want to do things on their own time in their own way. And, you know, maybe in certain moments they want to take this this video and, and, and not that one. And that's what self-guided is for. Um, the certificate of completion is, like you said, it's a little bit more handheld along the way. And you actually do, you, you noted about the grading, you do have to pass the quiz in order to move on. And the goal there is really to prove, hey, I've actually committed myself to this training. I've committed myself to learning about transhumanity from a trans person and engage with the content in a way that demonstrates I actually understand what I've learned. Um, that is more geared to having people who are doing DEI trainings, trans inclusion trainings at a business or even a school to be able to then prove that they've engaged with, with the work in a meaningful way. Right. And speaking of which, one of the very first adopters of this training is General Mills. And um, yeah. they have 35,000 employees. Um, where are they in, in the implementation of that? Have they already started implementing it with their employees? Yeah, well, so I'm I'm really really excited about General Mills, um, and especially I mean I'm honored that they are one of the first people to adopt adopt the program. I I, I did a speech at or a training at the headquarters a, a month or so ago and had a really great time there. Um, they are ve they seem very engaged in getting getting involved. Um, I to, I don't know exactly where they are in the process because that has not been disclosed to me, but I I do know they've created an account um, and they they've begun uh, disseminating it to their to their um, their third. 35,000 employees, and I'm really excited to see uh, how that goes and to hear more feedback about it. Yeah, super important, and, and I'm thrilled. And some other companies, by the way, just for people's information, uh, FOLX Health August and Within Health have all um, signed up already for this program. Um, how do people either individually or as a company engage um, and uh, sign up for it? So you can just go to lanechanger.com, lanechanger is L-A-N-E, and then changer, like game changer, but with the word lane at the beginning. Um, and lanechanger.com, if you just Google lanechanger, it will also pop up, and you can, you can purchase it on the website. There are licenses for companies from public schools to private schools to colleges to nonprofit organizations to corporations. Uh, and there are also individual licenses for parents, for students. Um, we're also doing a little bit of a launch sale right now, so individual licenses are 50, 50.50% off, and the whole site um, is 15% off. So uh, we're really excited to get this out there and just want, like I said, to have it be as accessible as possible. So that's, that's the reason for the, for the launch sale because I, I want everybody to be as excited about it as I am. Um, and, um, yeah, pretty much anybody who can get online and, and get to that website can access it right now. Uh, you can download and, and start your training now. Excellent. I wanted to get the, that housekeeping out of the way so that we didn't that we didn't lose that and run out of time. Yeah, thank you. Uh, one of the things, yeah, like one of the key principles behind this um, is what you say: create connection before asking for action. Can you go into that and tell us what what that is and why it's important? 
Absolutely. Um, so one of the things that I've found in the, like I said, hundreds of trainings I've given is that when people feel that they can relate to me, they are far more willing to take action. But if I just provide them with an action, it's actually less likely they're going to engage because they're just being told what to do about something that they don't understand. And if you think about your personal life, you're far more likely to take action for those around you whom you understand, who you love, who you're connected with, than you are for random people you've never met. The problem with uh, people people actually taking action for trans people is that a lot of people, like I said earlier, about 60% of the country claims they've never met a trans person. They don't feel connected to a trans people. And when that disconnection is perceived, then trans people are in this other category sitting by ourselves, essentially being in a, in a place where the rest of the country doesn't feel they can relate to us. They don't feel connected to us and they therefore, therefore don't believe that, that action is, is necessitated to take care of us essentially, to be humans together. So the goal is to create that connection to say, hey, actually being trans is not this alien experience in this other category. It's actually an experience of gender, which everybody has. And that's one of the things I really um, encourage people to recognize and what I've done through my trainings and I've seen is very impactful is when I share my story and I share my humanity, people always say, wow, I didn't realize I was going to connect with this or that or, oh, yeah, I've, I've felt that way too, Skylar. Um, and it's because this is actually a very human experience. Yes, my gender history might be different from yours, but my hum human experience, my emotional experience probably is not, not unrelatable. And that is right. the key for people to understand because then action almost immediately follows once we've had that connection. So one of the modules um, in, in the series is on dating. And that has got to be a huge educational need. I mean, it, it's like I know of um, transgender friends who – when they go out on a date, they absolutely abhor having to educate the other person yeah, as yeah. to who they're dating. I mean, you know, it's totally. like you know, before they get to who they actually are, they have to go through the whole whole transgender education piece. Um, so I can see this as being a very, very useful module. Like, you want to go out with me? Here, go watch this. Call me in the morning. Um, <laughs> yeah. What, what do you cover in that module? Yeah, so, you know, one of the things that we talk about um, when we refer to trans people and dating is people often, um, I'll use actually the example you gave where you go on a date with a trans person. People expect that a trans person must disclose their identity, right? Um, and I think it's really important to recognize that that is, again, going back to expectations, like we started this interview with talking about, um, when I expect somebody else to do something, that's about me expecting them to do something. And when I expect, you know, that somebody tells me that they're trans, what I'm also saying is that um, I assume that everybody is cis, Right. And I think right. it's really important for us to dissect that. I'm not going to give everything away that's in that module because I do want people to go check out landchanger.com. Um, but I, but I will say that, that the module and the, all of the training goes through understanding that um, trans people don't owe other people our identities and other people should really be educating themselves on, on, on really who trans people are and just gender literacy in general, again, because this is not just about trans people. We all have experiences with gender. Excellent. So, Skylar, you're fantastic, um, and I'm, I'm so thrilled about Lane Changer. I think that is super important, and um, I, I'm hoping it has incredible, incredible traction. 
We're down to our Thank last you. few minutes here. What have I not asked you that we should talk about? Oh, goodness. Um, well, I will say that in a, in a country um, with so many anti-trans bills and especially, I mean, I know the trans athlete conversation has really been on the tips of everybody's tongues and minds and uh, consciousnesses. You know, everybody's weighing in on, on where trans people do or don't belong, right? Um, oh, trans people shouldn't be in sports. They shouldn't be in bathroom. They shouldn't, even the other day, somebody was talking about that and I, I, I wasn't even involved in the conversation. It was like in an Uber. Um, everybody is weighing in on this, on this conversation. And so many people have no idea what they're talking about. They are, they are acting from a place of unconscious bias. And the reason I named this is because we actually all are usually starting from a place of acting from unconscious bias. Why? Because we all live in this very racist, white supremacist, misogynistic, homophobic, transphobic world. And when we are raised in that world, we're going to digest some of those biases and we're going to then act from those biases. It doesn't make us a horrible person to have unconscious bias. It does make it horrible if we don't take the time to unpack it. If we don't take the time mm-hmm. to really say, ah, this is the system I'm working from. So I encourage people to recognize this is the system we are all working for. Therefore, of course, I have these knee-jerk reactions and my feelings are, all, are not always facts. And that's one of the things that I encourage people, the reason I encourage people um, to really think more, especially about the trans athletics one, because that's such a hot button topic right now. But Lane Changer will help you walk through that. Through that, There's about six modules on trans people in sports specifically, in addition to all the other training. And it really helps you, uh, in my opinion, take a step back and say, where do I, where am I coming from? Like, wh- where are these biases coming from? What do I truly understand about this topic? What do I actually know about this topic? And how can I find the humanity at the center of it, because that's really what matters. Um, so I guess the short answer to your question is, I think we need to remember that trans people are, are really people, but it, will, it, it sometimes is very difficult for people to actually digest that, and Lane Changer is a, is a really great way for people to enter that uh, conversation with humanity at the centerpiece. Perfect. Humanity at the centerpiece, and I'm afraid that is all the time we have for today. Um, Scholar, thank you for being you. Thank you for sharing your experience so generously to the world. Thank you for Lane Changer, and thank you for coming on today. Um, especially thank you my, so much. My little selfish thank you. So <laughs> no, thank you. Um, I really appreciate your time. I, I, it's been absolutely fantastic, and you may come back anytime. I mean, Brody would love to talk to you as well. I'm sure um, his loss today, um, and <laughs> that's you. it for us uh, at Rated LGBT Radio. We will be back again next week with an absolutely fantastic show. I have absolutely no idea what it will be about, but I can guarantee you that those are the adjectives that we will be attaching to it. So for all of us here, um, have a great week. Um, Tell your friends, subscribe, and we will talk to you again soon. You've been listening to Rated LGBT Radio.